We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. All right, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if they'd like. The rest of you, if you turn in your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 1 this morning. Uh, You got your four Gospels and then Acts. Seems a little weird, doesn't it, to move from lament to what seems like business as usual, but it's not. What I mean by that is that um, God's answer to the enmity of the world is the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel that's lived out by by. Uh, God's people and and has real effects in the world, but it's still the gospel. And so it's actually as natural as anything to begin talking about mission after lamenting about brokenness. So last week, if you were here, we talked about the target of mission, right? How there's really two types of people in the world. There's those that need Jesus and there's those that don't realize that they do. Uh, That was kind of a big thing that we talked about. And then what we keep seeing as we're in this, this, um, this series called Missional Conversations, we're in this series on, on uh, God's mission in the world and our mission with Him, is that we are called to go, called to help others encounter Jesus, called on this mission to make disciples of all nations. But how do we do that? I don't know about you, but I, I, can't, I can't do that. I have talked to people till they're blue in the face. Like, they're blue in the face. Not me yet, because I can talk forever. But uh, they're blue in the face, because they're trying to get me to stop. And it doesn't do anything, right? How can we do that? How can we help people encounter Jesus? Where does the power come from? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. Both the power of that for mission and the direction it sends us on. So if you have your place in the book of Acts, our habit here is to stand. We're going to be reading, so if you would do that, we're going to be reading... Uh, chapter 1 of, of Acts, verses 6 through 8. I should say this before we get started. For some of you, these are really familiar verses. Really familiar verses are dangerous for us. Because for those for whom they're really familiar, what that means is you are really tempted to not really listen. Just kind of check out and be like, I've heard Acts 1, 6 through 8 a million times. But God speaks to us through His Word. And so I would ask all of us to try and hear it as if it were the first time, okay? This is God's word. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father's fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, no matter what we came into this room with, I pray that you would meet us right there. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you open them by the power of your spirit? We might receive with joy what you have for us today. Would you, would you help us to hear your voice? Open our eyes, O oh Lord, that we might see and our ears that we might hear 
our minds that we might understand and our hearts to receive you. Because Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So let everything that you have done come to the fore. And let everything else fall away. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So when I was a really young Christian in my late teens, um, I became a Christian when I was 18. Uh, so when I was a Christian in my late teens, my early 20s, there was this mystique that surrounded um, the, the uh, vocation, calling, the word missionary, right? And this was reinforced by a couple of missionary biographies I read at the time. I'm not sure if you've ever read missionary biographies, but they were like insane. Uh, most of them are like, are you kidding me? People actually did that. Uh, and, and so there's this mystique that kind of came over me. And how this mystique affected me was that it gave me the impression that to be a missionary, you had to be this like higher order of Christian, right? This higher order of Christian that was just off the chain in terms of like courage and faith and like trusting God to do insane things. And then you took all of that, that you, who you were, and you went over to some other part of the world, um, especially... Uh, places that have jungles and or deserts. Um, if you could have a desert and a jungle at the same time, you would be like extra great. But there, there would have to be some kind of other side of the worldness to your, to your location. Maybe you've read those stories, right, of, of missionaries who packed their belongings to go overseas in a casket. Have you ever read those? They would pack their belongings to go overseas in a casket because they never expected to come home. So they just pack it in the casket so they could be buried once they got there. Um, well, not like in the trip, but while they were doing their work. And this is part of what, frankly, convinced me that mission work, world mission work, was not for me. Um, I have no intention of doing that. I'm not a super Christian called to a foreign land. And, and I think part of that mystique remains for a lot of us when we begin talking about mission, being on mission with God. How can I go and do, uh, do that mission thing, even if... It isn't somewhere across the world. Well, the, our passage this week helps to break some of that down because it helps us to understand the way this works. And it shows us the power behind mission and where it begins. So we're going to look at this passage in three ways. As always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at an inward expectation. We're going to look at an, at an outward power. And then we're going to look at a clear direction. Okay? An inward expectation, an outward power, and a clear direction. Let's get started. Now... Before we jump into this passage, we have to get a little bit of background, because this passage doesn't make a ton of sense to us unless we have that. So Acts, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Acts is the second volume of a, a work written by a guy named Luke. He wrote a gospel that carries his name, Luke's gospel. He wrote both Luke and Acts, and he wrote them to this guy named Theophilus um, to try and tell him about all that Jesus had done. Uh, the book of Luke, he says, I'm, I'm writing to you an orderly account of these things that we've seen that, that have happened. And then in, look, in the book of Acts, he says, uh, in my previous volume, I, I wrote about these, and now I'm going to talk to you about what Jesus continued to do. And right here, in, in the book of Acts, Acts picks up right after the resurrection of Jesus, um, and the first chapter deals with his ascension, that is his going to heaven bodily, not in spirit form, Jesus wasn't a ghost. He goes in, into heaven bodily uh, to reign. So, if you're new to Christianity, stick with me for a second so I can help this make sense. The Bible teaches, and Christians believe, that, that humanity was made for God. That we were made to be dependent on Him. That we were made to find our rest in Him. I was reminded of that uh, 
you know, even this morning as I was praying and journaling a little bit, preparing to come here, that great quote by um, that North African church father by the name of St. Augustine, um, who said that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, We were made to find all of our rest in him, to love him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. But the Bible also teaches that we're not like that anymore, right? That's no surprise. It shouldn't come to a surprise to surprise any of us. That we're not like that anymore. We are now, by nature, independent of God, broken, guilty of betraying God and alienated from him. But we also believe, Christians also believe, that God didn't leave us there, but that he promised to make things right. And he promised that way back when things went bad. He's going to rescue us from all of this. And he begins working that out through the family of this dude named Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. He had many sons. Many sons said, Father Abraham, I'm one of them. You know the song, okay? But what God said was that it would be through Abraham's family that he would rescue humanity. But the problem is, is that Abraham's family, if you read the story, they weren't like shining examples of spirituality. They're just as messed up as the rest of us. And... And that means that they're going to have an awful hard time rescuing anyone else. Because if you're in need of rescue, how do you rescue somebody? If you're drowning, how do you save someone else who's drowning? You can't. Drowning people can't save drowning people. And what this meant in time is that Abe's family, they had God's word. They even had God's presence, but they just kept betraying him. Just like all of us do. They had rules. They had revelation, but it wasn't enough. Because of their sin, because of our sin. And so finally they were sent into exile because of all this from the land that God had promised them. But even as he sent them into exile, into Babylon and into Assyria, he promised to bring them back. He said, I'm going I'm to bring you back, I'm going to make all things right again. And I'll deal with your sin, your betrayal, just like I promised in the beginning. And so since Abraham's family was just as messed up as everybody else... But God had promised to save us through Abraham's family. God became part of Abraham's family to rescue us. And he did that in Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly like we were meant to. He died to bear the guilt for our sin. And he rose from the dead to defeat sin, death, and hell. And he offers what he did for us freely by faith. Okay, This is is the basic outline of the Christian story. Jesus is the answer to God's promise. So in the background of this passage in Acts 2 is the fact that you have a group of people, they are called disciples, they're sitting around talking to Jesus who is risen from the dead, they believe him to be God's Messiah, the one who would put an end to sin, death, and hell and bring his people back from exile. With me? That's our background. So now let's look at the question that they ask. And the low expectations of it. Look down at verses 6 and 7. They ask, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that question may not make a whole lot of sense to us, but it was completely logical. It's completely logical. Because if you were a first century Jew, you knew all the stuff that I just said about God's promises. That was just part of the air you breathed. You and I, even if you were raised in the church, the, the most you probably understand about the Old Testament, you probably have some Bible stories in your head. You know about Noah and a rainbow. You know about David and a sling. And um, you, you, may, you may even know some crazy stuff about the prophets, right? Like they did really crazy stuff, like lying on their side for three years or walking around naked to make their point. That is not okay anymore. I'm just saying. Okay, we're not going to do that. But you know some of those stories. But if you were a first century Jew, you, you understood the broad outline of, of the whole story because it was, it was your cultural narrative. 
And so included in all of those things, all of God's promises, was how much God loves his people and he's going to set the world to rights by throwing down, by putting down arrogant powers like Rome. So God had promised, you see, that when he dealt with sin, that he would set a king on David's throne. And that he would make this kingdom of righteousness to, to be for, for all peoples. A, a world where, where justice and peace and mercy would reign. But he would also restore the fortunes to Israel. And so what Jesus' disciples are asking at this point is, is this what you're about to do? Is God going to do this? Is he about to put a king on a throne in Jerusalem and make Israel great again? Okay? And now, they had already thought that this was about to happen. This is why you would see, if, if you've read the Gospels, you've, you've seen his, his uh, disciples start to jockey for position. James and John asked if they could sit at Jesus' right and left when he comes into his kingdom, which is all about power. Can, I, can we be the most important people sitting next to the king? Right? Or how uh, his disciples would get into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. That wasn't just like this existential, like, dude, I rock. This was like, who's going to get to have the most power when Jesus is king? Everything about these discussions has to do with power. And so now they are asking, are we getting our kingdom? More importantly, are we getting our place in that kingdom now? So let me be really clear. Jesus had been crucified, and above his head when he was crucified was a title in three languages. King of the Jews. It was a, it, he was crucified as a royal pretender. But then he got up. Like, he was put to death, and then he got up. He defeated Rome. And so his followers are thinking, now is the time. The kingdom is coming. We're going to kick Rome out and get our kingdom back. And oh, by the way, we're going to have these great positions of power. You see that? They're thinking, Jesus' resurrection means Israel gets to be a player on the world stage again. And Jesus answers them. Kind of. Look at verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed in his own authority. Now, two things on this. First, he doesn't say yes and he doesn't say no. He doesn't say yes. Now's the time. Nor does he say no. No, no, no. This is important because the overall effect of his answer is to say this is the wrong question. Israel being a national player on the world stage is the wrong question. That's not what this is about. The second thing is when he uses these words times and seasons... Maybe you noticed that. Greek has a couple of different words for time. Both are in play here. The first means moments, like uh, beginning points. That's the times. Is this the beginning point? Is, is this when it's all going to take place? Seasons has more to do with like epics, like, um, like uh, vast movements of God throughout redemptive history, throughout the history of, of God's plan. And Jesus is saying, ultimately, it's not for you to know the inner workings of God's plan. All right? So now, why does this matter? Why does his answer matter? Okay? Two reasons. The first is that Jesus is, is telling them, your expectations are set too low. I think that's just kind of true of all of us. Most of us got into a relationship with God because we wanted something from him, if we're being honest. Maybe that was forgiveness because we knew that we were messed up. Maybe it was peace because we were chaotic. Maybe it was uh, community because we felt alienated. But it was something that drew us in. And at some point in our Christian lives, God goes, your bar is way too low, man. I didn't make you just for community. I made you for me. I didn't make you just for peace. I made you for me. 
I didn't make you just for forgiveness. I made you for me. The God of the universe promises himself to us. that, That he is in some way to be our possession. Can you even fathom that? They set their bar too low. They're looking for a national presence and some political power. And Jesus says, that's not the point. What is at stake here is not positions around a little throne in Jerusalem. Because you see, God chose Abraham's family to be not only the recipients of his rescue, but the means of it. The means of it throughout the world. They were to be conduits of blessing, not just those who bask in it. So first and foremost, they're setting their bar too low. But secondly, Jesus is reminding us, and he needs to remind us because we forget often that we are not God. God is God. We are his creatures. Okay? He reveals himself to us. At times he reveals to us things he's going to do. But what we often want, what they wanted, the inside track, that's often more about our desire to have control over what's happening than anything else. All of the craziness in the 90s especially of like every... You know, if you saw TV preachers, there'd be this big banner behind them and there'd be this timeline. And at some point there was a dragon. Not really sure about the dragon, but there was this big dragon and monsters and da-da-da-da and then a a golden city at the end. Our desire to want to know what's coming isn't because we need to prove the Bible. The people who want to know that already believe the Bible. They want to know it so they know what's coming next. How can we get control? Getting the inside track is about control. Jesus says, I defeated sin I defeated death. I defeated hell. You can trust me with what comes next. Everything they are asking for from a political kingdom to knowledge of the future is about power. But it's ultimately for them. And so Jesus tells them, you're going to have power. But it ain't going to be for you. Okay? Look at that as we look at outward power, the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 8. He says, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, stop there. So this is one of those verses, if you don't know much about the Bible and about Christianity, it sounds like Jesus is about to make his own little superhero team. Um, You're going to get powers, uh, and that's going to come upon you. It sounds, you know, a little crazy. So let me break this down really quick. Uh, First, let me look at that word power. Excuse the pun, but the word power is is a charged word uh, in the Bible. it's, It's important. Um, Jesus' disciples, of course, were talking about power, right? Influence. Their power to affect their will on things. But it's not exactly the kind of power Jesus is talking about. Jesus is about to send this small group of people out on mission to the world. The world. Right? We said this a few weeks ago. We can get really overwhelmed by the notion of going to mission to our city. And most people, in, even in our country, wouldn't call this a city. <laughs> it's 30,000 people on its best day. They were about to go to the world, all of it. And they're the only Christians in it. And that would be daunting enough. But remember what I said a few minutes ago, that humanity is now, by nature, bent away from God, independent of God. And that means that... that We don't have to be taught to believe the lie that God doesn't love us, doesn't care about us, we can't trust him. We believe that by our birth. And and so, you know, the Apostle Paul uh, says this in a different way in in his longest letter, the the, uh, the letter of the Romans, where he says that we now 
continually suppress the truth. Even the truth that comes at us about God, we, we want us continually suppress it in unrighteousness. And so they're to go to the whole world, but the world is by nature suppressing what they are going to confront it with. And so what Jesus meant by power isn't like x-ray vision and super strength. It is the power to accomplish their mission. And this is huge because Christians often get confused that God gives gifts simply for them, right? He gives us gifts and we kind of like, isn't this great? I can now enjoy this. But when God gives gifts, if God empowers you, it is for the sake of others. Not just so you can do some really neat stuff. He gives you gifts for the sake of others. And so we are to be empowered, but it's by the Holy Spirit. Now, Presbyterians have a little bit of a his track record for not talking much about the Holy Spirit, uh, which isn't totally fair, but it, it is what it is, okay? The Holy Spirit is God. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not something impersonal. He is God, okay? He's the third person of the Trinity. The Christian understanding of God is that God is one God in three persons, one in essence, three in persons. All three are God, all three are persons, and the three are one. I know. That's going to mess with your head for a little bit, and it's okay. It's been messing with people's heads for a long time. It's one of the things that probably means that it's true because it's bigger than us, and God is bigger than us, and therefore wouldn't we expect that things about him would be bigger than our understanding, okay? So the Holy Spirit is God. God is going to come upon you. And that promise that the Holy Spirit would come upon God's people is part of the expectation of what would happen when God would come to set the world to rights. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that talk completely about this, about God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And all kinds of people would be empowered by Him. And this makes sense, right? Because if our problem is independence... And I know if you're new to Holy Cross, that's a new category for you, right? Because you've, you've grown up or you've been raised to think sin is about uh, morality. And not, not sinning means being moral. And, and sinning means being immoral. And there's, ah, uh, maybe. But you can be very moral and very independent of God, which means still biblically it's still sin. Okay? And so if our problem is independence, then being reconciled to God would be dependence, Right? And the utmost form of depending on God would be God empowering us to do everything we do. And so when God sets the world to rights, of course, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. This is what Jesus is talking about. It is the promise that when you place your faith in Him, God the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you for all that God calls you to do. And not just the crazy stuff. Living. Living before His face. And what he calls us to do is to be witnesses to the world. Look at the rest of that verse. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now, we're in the Bible Belt, so when I talk about witness, most of us think that's some response you give to the preacher, right? That's the amen that he asks if I can get a witness and you say something. Uh, But Jesus means something a little more. Because you see, unlike all, all the other world religions... Christianity is not about ideas. Christianity is about events. You take the ideas and you can move them aside because if the events didn't happen, the ideas don't matter. 
Christianity isn't about rules or rituals. It's about a relationship restored by Jesus. And so if Jesus didn't do what he did, if he didn't live perfectly, if he didn't die sacrificially, if he didn't rise victoriously, it doesn't really matter what he said. You with me? Because frankly, all that would mean is if, if, if Jesus is still in the grave, then all he did was give us a standard that none of us could meet anyway. Why follow him? This is why the concept of witness is so important. Because witness is a legal term. Some of you all know a lot about that. A lot of folks in the legal trade in, in, this, uh, in this congregation. You know how that works? Witnesses attest to facts. They attest to things that happened. They also attest to the significance of those facts. So these disciples are going to go into the world to proclaim... Not the teachings of Jesus, the facts of Jesus, the things that happened. But notice how this is going to play out. The disciples expected a local political power, and Jesus says, your bar's too low. You're going to go out. You're going to go out. They're going to go into Jerusalem. That's the city they knew. In fact, it was the city they were in. They're going to go into all of Judea. That's the region they're familiar with. So far, so good, right? You go to the city that you know, the region that you're familiar with. So far, we're all good. They're also to go into Samaria. Oh, boy. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, does it? Jews and Samaritans, though, they didn't get along. Deep-seated, historical, racial friction. Maybe that's speaking too, too lightly. They hated each other. Jews did not go into Samaria. A good Jew wouldn't be caught dead near a Samaritan. They were dirty. They would even go so far as to call them half-breeds. Jesus says, guess where you're going? To the people you hate Historically. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses there too. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So they asked about a kingdom, and Jesus didn't deny that his kingdom was coming. He didn't say, no, 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 you got it all wrong. There's not going to be this kingdom. He's just changing the how. For them, they saw it as this strip of land, and he said, "You you don't get it. They looked for a political power, but Jesus said that their power would come by the Holy Spirit. That they wouldn't stay and bask in that they would go out. They're going to go out to comfortable places. They're going to go to uncomfortable places. Because he was not interested in only a strip of land in the Middle East. Jesus came to reconcile all types of people to God and to one another. So what I want to do right now, quickly, quickly, I understand where we're at. Okay, so quickly, I want to speak in a more applied manner, if I can, with this passage. Uh, First, let's look at preparation and power. Here's the deal. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus wasn't asking for volunteers. Did you see that? He didn't say, you know, I could really use some witnesses. I could really use a few of you to kind of get on board. Could you come join me? And, and I, I could, we could do this thing. If you'd be so kind as to be my witnesses, this is not an ask. It's a promise. It's a promise. Jesus is saying that his people will be witnesses. If you're a Christian here in this room this morning, not everybody is, so if you're not, you can just kind of listen in for a second. 
But if you're a Christian here this morning, you will be a witness. The only question is, what exactly are you witnessing to? And this is really important. So, so if, you've, if you've checked out, and we all do that, so no, no shame in that. But if you checked out, check back in real quick, okay? Because this is super important. The Christian gospel, the content of our witness, is that every one of us, distributively, without fail, every one of us is broken, sinful, and needy, right? But that we are rescued by Jesus, that his death is enough to cover over our sin, that his life is enough, no matter what we've done or haven't done, his life is enough to to achieve for us the smile and the pleasure of God. But the problem is that most of us, if we're being honest, between our, our personal relationships and maybe our social media presence, we either communicate that God likes good people, so come be good like me, or God doesn't really care about most of your life, and you can keep it really private and no one really has to know. Because God's not really, but for this little section of your life from 10 to whenever Rick gets done. Right? Being a witness means being able to communicate the gospel to others and its significance in our lives. You with me? What are you witnessing to? People are watching. People are listening. People know you. What are you witnessing to? Is it that God likes me because of my social causes? My niceness? My perfect little family on Facebook? Fake book? Or is it that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changed me? Was enough for me? Saved me? Okay, here's the good news in all of this, friends. Some of us talk ourselves out of communicating to others about Jesus because of that same mystique of the missionary I used to have. But Jesus says here that you are witnesses. And that what we witness to is important. But the power to accomplish that isn't on us. Of course it's not. If it were, it wouldn't be Christian. You can't, if suddenly God calls you to be dependent on him for everything, except when you go out and talk to people about Jesus. Except when you talk about how big a deal God is in your life. And then, of course, that's all on you. Figure that out. It is God who saves. It is the Holy Spirit who worked in our hearts so that we could believe in the first place. And he will work through us. Okay? Lastly, I want to talk about getting directions. Because if witness is something that you cry out in church, witnessing, right? If witness is something you get in church, witnessing is something you do in pairs to neighborhoods you'll never visit again. It's door-to-door. It's terrible. Is that what Rick's about to talk about? No. It's not. Okay? Jesus kind of breaks that up. Because you see, the direction here is outward from a center. Because at this point, the disciples are in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he told them to stay there. So they're in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, first you're going to be my witnesses there. In other words, the first place that we're witness, witnesses to uh, is the, the place that we are closest. Next is Judea. Judea is basically like the same place culturally, but geographically distant. That's kind of like what we're about to do as a church when we, when we start a new congregation in Fishersville. Okay, with Holy Cross East. Samaria is a completely different thing because that is multi-ethnic ministry. 
Jesus is sending his disciples at that point to people who like the day before, maybe even that day, they had deep-seated prejudice against. Deep-seated historical and cultural prejudice. Does that sound familiar? It should. Then the ends of the earth. That's what uh, the Vogans are doing right now, Jeremy and Lynn, as they're, they're going to Honduras. They should be there. Um, it's what the Conleys are going to be doing in August. Here's the thing. If we just camp on that, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, everyone in this room is going to get so overwhelmed, we're going to go, I can't, uh, I can't do that. I, I can't do it. So we're, what I want to do is just talk small for a second. Okay? Our Jerusalem is our neighborhoods. It's our city. It's our community. For some of us, it's our workplace. Jerusalem is where you are at the most home. How are we witnessing to Jesus and his work in our lives where we are at the most home? Now, some of you are totally overwhelmed right now, and others of you are just blatantly saying, I ain't going to do that. So you might as well just skip to the closing hymn, because I'm not doing that anyway. Um, So let me get us into baby steps. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do two things this week. First, I want you to write down the name, names of three people that you know that don't know Jesus. Just three. Not 50. Not 300. Three. Okay? Three people. If you don't know three people who don't know Jesus, it's time to get out. Go to the park. Go somewhere. Introduce yourself. Meet some people. Okay? Write down their names and begin praying for them every day this week that God would begin working in their lives. And that he would give you an opportunity to talk to them about what Jesus has done in your life. Not anything crazy, not an apologetics course, not a five proofs of the resurrection. What Jesus has done in your life. Second. That's the first thing. Three names. Three names, guys. Three names. Second thing. On that back table are these little books called The Story. If you don't have one of those, grab one. The story is a very winsome and uh, great way to tell the entire story of the Bible. And it's a good resource that you can give someone who says, like, well, you're a crazy Christian. Like, what is it that you think about things? You can just give it to them and say, why don't you read this? We can talk about it. It tells the whole story of redemption, what we talk about in here almost every week. So grab one of those. But because of the events of this week, I also want to speak to our Samaria. I don't know if it was just blind luck or providence that put that little word in this passage that I was going to be preaching on this week. That God called his people to go be witnesses to those for whom there was so much cultural angst. They just couldn't, they they couldn't even imagine what it would be like. We don't even go through that area. We don't travel there. I'm going to hope it's providence. See, I I want to think that most of us in this room would love to talk about a diverse church. We would love to talk about how the church needs to lead the way in our culture. But what we often mean by that is either the church as an institution or the church as in the leadership. What we don't often mean is the church. Because the church would mean, wait a minute, hold on, that means me? Leading the way? Yeah. Listen, you will never see a diverse church until you experience a diverse dining room.
You're never going to see what um, D.A. Horton calls ethnic conciliation, which if you didn't have a chance to watch that, it's on the city, watch it, it's great. You're never going to experience conciliation in the church until you experience it in your living room. For some of us, that's going to mean being secure enough in the gospel that we can sit and ask with genuine curiosity what it is like to be black or Latino or Asian in this community without defensiveness. Just curious. But friends, we cannot afford any longer to keep the status quo. Our witness to Jesus, listen to me, our witness to Jesus is being compromised. Compromised. Because of our relational segregation. We've got to change. The good news is, the Holy Spirit's come upon you if you're a Christian. And so the power for that is not in you, it's in Him. You see, here's the thing about that mystique that we talked about. Some of it's true. People that pack up all their stuff and move across the world to go talk to other people in cultures they don't know, with languages they haven't learned yet, they do have great faith. They are brave. But people who consistently do it next door, or the next cubicle, or the next swing at the park, they are too. And none of it can be done without the power of the Spirit. What makes an effective person on mission, what makes a mission effective, is not a person of amazing faith, incredible mind, or a holy life. It is the work of the Spirit moving them out. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we need you. We need your grace in our lives. We need your power to move us out. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us that. We ask you would help us to believe the gospel enough that we would be secure in you and not hungering and thirsting for the approval of others and that we would have compassion on those that are lost because we know what we've been saved from. Holy Spirit, would you work in us and be the power that you promised to be and move us out Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.